So this morning we're going to look at the uh, story of the, the wise man who built his house upon the rock and the foolish man who built his house upon the sand, a familiar story that you know so well. It appears in Luke's Gospel and in Matthew's Gospel. I uh, recently bought a new Bible and um, we're very privileged in this country, aren't we, to have many Bibles and many translations and of, of recent years I've been using an ESV Bible, but my latest Bible is a red letter Bible. Have you got a red letter Bible where the letters, the words of Jesus are in red? I've got one other one. It's a uh, King James version. The print's so small because I'm not as young as I used to be. I can't see it anymore. But this is an ESV Bible, which is my favorite translation at the moment. And maybe you can see from there, well, you can't, can you? But believe me, the words of Jesus are in red. And there's lots of Jesus words in the Bible. And it, they stand out, which is not a bad thing, is it, really? And so it's made me look at Jesus' words even closer. We know that the words of Jesus are so important, but it's very helpful when they stand out in red letter. So if you haven't got one, I'd recommend you get one. This is an ESV Bible. You can get it from Amazon or Crossway or wherever it is. Fantastic to read. And here is a story as recorded in Luke's Gospel from the Sermon on the Plain. So Luke talks about the Sermon on the Plain, doesn't he? Jesus' uh, uh, Sermon on the Plain. And Matthew, of course, talks about Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And there's some very similar stories that he told, one on the mount and one on the plain. And anyone, certainly if you've attended Sunday school here or anywhere else, you will know the story about the wise man who built his house upon the rock and the foolish man who built his house upon the sand. I met a friend uh, just recently who I hadn't seen for many years, and uh, he, he told me about how he built, he bought a plot of land in Lewis and built his own house. That's exciting, isn't it? He described this new house to me, and the way he described it to me, it's uh, you know fully functioning. It's got uh, what do you call those things? Solar panels, wind powers. You can turn your heating on, you know, whilst you're on the train or whatever you want to do, and uh, and uh, it's all fully functioning, kind of grand design type house. And my friend uh, is a Norwegian, and he has obviously a mistrust of British builders. So he had his house imported, and he had his house fitted out by British builders who he said took an age, and they were hopeless, a bit rude about. But one thing he told me a lot about was the foundation. He told me how much the foundation cost, and it was a fortune. And if you can think of my big... Norwegian friend with blonde hair and bushy eyebrows, and he said to me, this house isn't going anywhere, <laughs> because he built it on such a firm foundation. Well, Jesus, of course, was a carpenter, wasn't he, by trade? He knew all about building, and he knew all about foundation. He could give advice, actually, on how to build a house. But this uh, section we're looking at here, and Fiona kindly read it to us this morning, uh, about the story of the wise and the foolish man, starts with a question. And if you look at the uh, red letter Bible, by the way, you'll notice that Jesus asks a lot of questions. Do you know how many different questions 
Jesus asked in the Gospels? 307. 307 questions he asked of other people. Do you know how many questions that uh, the Gospels record other people asked Jesus? 183. So Jesus asked us, or the, not asked, the people there, a lot more questions than were asked of him as recorded. And his question that preceded this story of the wise man who built his house upon the rock in Luke chapter 6 and verse 46. And if you've got your Bibles there, you can check to make sure what I'm saying is accurate, which is always good to check what the preacher's saying is according to the word of God. He said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Well, that reminds us, doesn't it, of another question recorded in Matthew in chapter 7, verses 21 to 23. Just before this same story in Matthew, when Jesus said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of the Father who is in, in heaven. On that day, on that final day, on that judgment day, there will be many who say to me, Lord, Lord, did I not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. That would be a terrible thing, wouldn't it? That would be a terrible thing to be amongst the many who are going to say that to Jesus at the gates of heaven. It's a terrible thing to read that many people will misunderstand this. It reminds me of what Jesus said to the Jews in John and chapter 6 and verse 39 when he said, you search the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is that they bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Well, we can only assume, can't we, that there will be a lot of religious, well-meaning people, perhaps even some theologians, perhaps even some church leaders who have heard what Jesus said but have not done what he tells them to do. In verse 47, Jesus says, Everyone who comes to me and hear my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when the flood arose and the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them, is like a man who built his house on the ground without a foundation. And when the stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. And so the question that Jesus says, or the question that we have, is how will we build our house? How will we build our house? With the perspective of the present, or are we building foundations that will stand the test of time. Well, we've seen, haven't we, all of us, the, uh, the effects of uh, short-term-minded uh, architecture. 
whether it's uh, housing or offices or town centres with those terrible modern sculptures which go rusty after only three years and cost a fortune for someone to design and put them all up. And we've seen uh, what happened in the 1970s. I think most of us, not all of us, some of us are too young for that, but most of us are old enough to see that kind of horrible building that was taken place. And, uh, and even housing estates that have been built on floodplains, haven't they? And then, uh, and then it floods. People say, oh, that's strange, it's flooded. Not surprising, is it? Because you built it on a floodplain because the builders were greedy. They didn't build it on a firm foundation. It's a short-sighted view, isn't it, for financial gain? And yet people even take a short-sighted view of life, not just in business and relationships. People take a short-sighted view of eternity. Jesus says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, but you don't do what I tell you? Don't just listen, act. Real discipleship requires radical change. What does Jesus tell us to do? Well, when I look in Mark, I turn to Mark's Gospel and look at the first red letters in Mark's Gospel. The first thing that Jesus said, told us to do in Mark's Gospel. What was it? You know what it is. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the Gospel. He doesn't just say believe in me, does he? He says repent. That demands a radical change. Real discipleship is radical change. It is more than just believing. I was reminded recently when reading James, and James in chapter 2 and verse 19, when it reminds us that faith without works is dead. And the scripture says in verse 19, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe that and shudder. Repentance is acting as we believed. And Jesus preached on the subject non-stop, on the subject of false, true and false conversions. He repeatedly spoke of the sheep and the goats, the wheat and the tares, the good fish and the rotten fish, the wise and the foolish virgins. Jesus was very concerned about spiritual self-deception. One of Jesus' longest parables in the scripture was, of course, the parable of the sower. The first hearer who does not truly understand the gospel and therefore doesn't respond. The second who responds with joy, but only temporarily. As soon as the going gets tough, he drops out. The third hearer falls away due to worldly worries and the desire for wealth. Only the fourth hearer understands, believes, and produces genuine fruit. Jesus explained that only the fourth hearer was actually saved. Others may have had some kind of religious experience, but they were not genuinely converted. I meet people who have had what they thought was a genuine conversion. And they say, I have fallen away. They weren't really converted. The seed wasn't, didn't really bear fruit in their heart. In other words, true converts act like Christians because they are Christians. In 2 Corinthians, in chapter 5 and verse 17, if anyone is in Christ, 
He is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. The Christian life is marked by radical change. From the old man to the new man. From the lover of darkness to the lover of light. Christians, of course, are by no means perfect. We know that, don't we? But the genuine believer increasingly demonstrates that they are being transformed into the image of God's beloved Son. When Paul was uh, talking to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20 and verse 21, testifying both to Jews and Greeks of repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. In Acts chapter 26, when Paul was giving his defense before uh, Agrippa, Paul tells of his conversion, how he declared to those in Damascus and then in Jerusalem and throughout the region of Judea, also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. Well, you know, there are lots of people who are very nervous about talking about repentance and forgiveness of sins because it makes people feel uncomfortable. Of course it does, because none of us like to be told that we're wrong, do we? But when we are preaching and telling people, as Jesus did, he said that people should turn around, that they should start a new life, that uh, faith in Jesus requires faith and action as we turn back to the living God. Jesus doesn't uh, uh, um, expect sinless perfection, but rather turning to him and doing what he says. However we try, we cannot change our own hearts. We have a deep dependence upon him. Jesus' message, and Fiona, thank you for reading such a long uh, part of the scripture, but he put it in context. It's very important, isn't it? And Jesus' message on the Sermon on the Plain, which we can't go into this morning, but Fiona was reading things out like, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. Judge not. Condemn not. Forgive. Give. They're things that go against the grain, aren't they? They're not in our human nature. This is not a pep talk. This is not a talk on how to help us to live a better life. This is not one of my old school reports, Tim must try harder. We have to repent. We have to turn around. I spend a lot of my life um, traveling around different places and uh, I normally get it right, much to my wife's surprise because she thinks I wander around in a daydream most of the time. But actually, the other day I got it really badly wrong. I'd had a, an overnight flight and uh, I was a little bit tired, that was my excuse. And, um, and I got on the train, it was the right train number, and I got on the train and uh, it, was, it, was, it, was in, it was in Switzerland, okay, I was going to France, and, um, and I'd been overnight transatlantic, and I got on the train, and uh, uh, it was a lovely warm train, it was lovely, and, uh, and I put my headphones in, and, you know, thought I'd have a little, little snooze, a little meditation, and uh, I was looking out the Lake of Geneva, which is beautiful, on the right-hand side, and uh, then it stopped at the station, I thought, this is not a station I would expect. And by the way, the lake is on the wrong side. <laughs> and then I realized, of course, I got on the wrong train. 
So then I traveled about another 40 minutes because it was an express train, and then I had to get off. I had to get off, didn't I? Otherwise, I was going in the wrong direction. And I had to buy another ticket and catch another train and turn around and come back. And that's what repentance is, isn't it? Repentance is turning around. If I'd looked at the destination, because I'm not really that stupid, and I'm very embarrassed, I don't know why I told you that. <laughs> it was very embarrassing. Just keep it secret, please. If I'd looked at the destination, I would have known it was wrong, wouldn't I? I would have done. But I didn't look at the destination. I was a bit tired. Couldn't be bothered. A bit warm and snuggly. And a lot of people in life, you know, they're not looking at the destination. It's too warm. It's too comfortable. I had to get off. It was freezing cold. And I had to buy another ticket and turn around. I had to repent. The teaching of Jesus to repent is as countercultural as it was then, as it is now. Think of Noah. Poor old Noah. He built that ark, didn't he? Built that ark. You know, no sign of rain. Noah started building an ark. How ridiculous. How much Mickey people must have taken out of Noah. Everyone who comes to me and hear my words and does them, says Jesus, I will show you what he is like. He is like the man building his house on the rock who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when the flood rose and the streams broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears me and does not do them is like the man who built his house on the ground without a firm foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. I'm reading a book at the moment. It's, uh, it's a new book by, it's called The Ten Commandments by a chap called Kevin de Jong. If you've ever read books by Kevin de Jong, He's a very sound man. I encourage you to read this book. And one of the notes I made was he says, the most important aspect of faith is not how hard we believe, but in whom we believe. People have often said to me, particularly in upsetting times, they've said, Tim, it's all right for you because you've got your faith. You've got your faith. Well, that's true, isn't it? I, that, that is very true. But Kevin says, Kevin de Jong says, it's not how hard we believe, but in whom we believe. People of other religions have said to me, it's all right for us, isn't it? Because we've got our faith. And I really believe it. Then they do. They sincerely believe it. There's no taking away from their sincerity. But it's not how hard you believe it's in whom you believe. Jesus is clear on this. He does not say it does not matter what you believe as long as you are sincere. He does not fit with our shallow pluralism of this world. He says there are two ways to build. We can either build our lives upon him, his teaching, which we will find is as solid as a rock, or we can build on any other religion or philosophy in the world and we can find that it is sand. And in the last days, it will spell ruin. You see, religion is often conceived as a, or as a human attempt 
to become acceptable to God by whatever belief system and practice. But that's no refuge, is it, for the rain and the wind and the storm? What Jesus offers is completely different. It's not, it's not religion. It's, where's the time going? It's not religion at all. The king has come to bring the kingdom. He is no less than God's rescue for men and women. Jesus does not say there will not be any storms or floods. There is every day the ups and downs. And some of those downs are extremely serious. Jesus' message is not the prosperity gospel that we hear proclaimed also in this country, in the USA, particularly in Africa at the moment, and parts of South America. Instead, Jesus said in verse 48, when the flood arose, if not if, but when, and the older I become, I realize how many people have storms in their lives. Even people for whom it appears their lives are perfect, they have storms in their lives. This is the story of two men, one who listened to the warning but sat back and did nothing, and the other who listened to the warning, acted and gained real assurance with confidence and certainty. It's important that we also think about the two types of storms. In addition to the storms of life that everyday life brings, we think about flooding. And flooding in the Bible is synonymous with judgment. The great storm at death and the final judgment. As we build our lives on his teaching, not just by hearing, but doing, we will be secure on the day of God's judgment. God did not write the standard of right and wrong. God is the standard of right and wrong. He is our moral conscience. Morality did not evolve as the world believes it because God is moral. That's how we know right and wrong. We've got a name for it, haven't we? Our conscience. This explains why you and I feel guilty when we do something wrong. That's why everybody has this intuitive fear of death because God put it into our hearts. Because of the foundation of God's throne is righteousness and justice. God cannot and will not let unrighteousness go punished. Hebrews 10.27 says it's appointed for man once to die and after that comes the final judgment. Well, what do we know about judgment? We know that unlike any earthly court, there will be no clever lawyer who can manipulate the law because, says the Bible, God will not be fooled. There will be no lost evidence, no perjury, no confusion. Every violation of God's perfect holy law will be judged for what it is, sin. And that makes us feel uncomfortable, at least it should. Even angry. But of course, it's better to examine ourselves today, isn't it? Rather than wait and not do anything about it. Imagine being before the uh, God the, the, in, the, in the final judgment seat. Imagine being in that courtroom on, and hearing the charge. Objection, Your Honour. I, I didn't know you existed. I'm not as bad as other people. 
I've done good things. Objection, Your Honour. You should let me know. go because you are good. Your objection, Your Honour. I haven't committed a lot of sins. I haven't done anything bad like rape or murder. I studied the Bible. I even taught other people about you. Objection, Your Honour. And eternity in hell is unreasonable. You are too loving to send me to hell. The inevitable verdict, the one none of us want to hear, is guilty. But that's precisely what God will say. And if we think that sounds scary, it is. And Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 31 says, words you know, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It's a terrible scenario, isn't it? We are guilty sinners and God must punish us. He is also filled with grace, mercy, loving kindness, and he desires to forgive us and rescue us. But if God simply dismissed us as guilty criminals, he would not be just. So how can God be just and yet forgiving at the same time? Well, you hope you know the answer, and that is the gospel. Ephesians chapter 2 and verses 4 to 6 says, God, being rich in mercy because of the great love in which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated him in the heavenly places in Jesus Christ. And that's why Jesus talks about two types of people. He talks about those who come to him, who hear his words and does them, and those who hear his words and does not do them. Everyone who hears my words and does them is like the man building his house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when the flood arose and the streams broke against it, that house could not uh, sorry, against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. And the one who hears them and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation and when the stream broke against it, immediately it fell and the ruin of that house was great. So we're asked, aren't we, to look beyond this world, look beyond time and sense. Jesus is our rock. The church's one foundation is Jesus Christ our Lord. Anyone's house of anyone's life built on him will stand. The house of anyone's life built on anything else will crash in ruins.